Welcome to the Siski Christian Fellowship Podcast. Our prayer is that the following verse-by-verse teaching of God's Word would bring you closer to Jesus. We are going to look at just a couple verses this morning uh, in chapter 5, and then we'll look at the entirety of the chapter on Wednesday night. We'll dig in a little bit deeper. But for this morning, we're going to look at verses 6 through 8 in 1 Corinthians chapter 5. And it says, Your glorying is not good. Do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump? Therefore, purge out the old leaven that you may be a new lump, since you truly are unleavened. For indeed, Christ our Passover was sacrificed for us. Therefore, let us keep the feast, not with old leaven, nor with the leaven of malice and wickedness, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. So there's a story of an old man who sold his house to a young couple for an incredible bargain. He sold his house for $5. But there was a catch. There was a stipulation. He said, I'll sell you guys this house for $5 under the condition, the stipulation, it has to be written into the contract, that I get to retain possession, sole possession over one nail, the nail that's protruding over the front door. And so this young couple said, great, five bucks, man, we'll buy the house. What kind of ownership can this guy have with just one nail? And so they bought the house for $5 and the man retained ownership of that one nail. And life went on as normal for uh, many years. Uh, They heard nothing from the old man. But then one day, he showed up and he said, I want my house back. And the couple said, ah, I don't think so. No, we, we've, we've started a family here. This is our home now. We're, we're not selling the house back. We're not interested. Thank you very much. So the man, he said, all right, have it your way. And he went out along the highway, and he found the rotting carcass of a dead skunk. And he took that skunk, and he hung it on the nail that he owned. And so as that skunk hung there, life became unbearable for the couple, man. Eating didn't sound good. Drinking, they couldn't sleep. No one would come to visit. It was the, the point of contention and arguing in their marriage. Uh, they saw legal counsel, but the, the contract was bulletproof. He owned that nail and could do whatever he wanted with it. And so finally they said, you know what? We are going to give you the house back. If we leave even one small sin in our life, Satan will hang a wretched stench upon that and make our lives miserable. That's the point of that story. If we leave even one part of our lives, if we give Satan ownership of that, he will take that one little part that we've given him authority and he will make our lives stink. He will make our lives miserable. He will make it so difficult for us. And Here, as Paul writes this letter to the church at Corinth, the Corinthian church had fallen into this way of thinking to where they said, you know, what's the big deal with a little bit of sin? What's the big deal with with just a a little bit of sin? And in the the Corinthian church, and we're going to study this out a little bit more on Wednesday night, and it'll become more clear, but what was going on is there was a member in their church body who was living in sexual immorality. And... The Corinthian church, instead of dealing with it, 
said, oh, you know what, we're just going to let it remain. There was a man who was actually sleeping with his stepmom in the Corinthian church. And the Corinthian church, they were proud of that. They, They were puffed up and they said, well, look at us. Look how diverse our church is. Uh, Look how, you know, willing we are to work with people. And Paul is writing and saying, hey, if you allow this individual to stay in your church, that corruption is going to spread throughout the congregation. Paul is saying, be careful. Be careful. Be willing to deal with that little sin because if it's left unchecked, it will infect the whole church. Now, this concept is true for us corporately as a church. That's how Paul is addressing the Corinthian church. That if you allow sin to thrive in the congregation, corruption will flow through the body. But it's not only applicable to us corporately, but it is applicable to us individually. That is, if we allow sin to be harbored into our own lives, it will spread through our lives personally and cause a great deal of trouble. And so Paul here, he uses this baking metaphor. He says, a little leaven leavens the whole lump. What is he talking about? Uh, What is leaven? If you are a baker, you are very familiar with what leaven is. If not, you looked it up like I did. Now, I knew what leaven was. I'm just kidding. Uh, But leaven is that, that... agent that you put into dough when you're making, you know, pizza dough or sourdough or, or whatever it is, white done white, white done right, you know, uh, good seed is my favorite bread. Whatever you're doing, it needs leavening agent. It's what causes the dough to rise. It's what gives uh, loft to whatever it is you're, you're cooking. And it doesn't matter if you're baking anything and you want it to be airy and delicious, man, it needs leaven. Whether that's the form of baking soda, baking powder, uh, yeast, whatever it is, there's that leavening agent. And that's what Paul is, is talking about. He's using this imagery of, of yeast in dough as a picture of what sin does in our lives. See, yeast in dough, leaven in dough, that's a great thing. It's fantastic. It gives big old fat, puffy cinnamon rolls and sourdough with all those holes in it. Uh, leaven in dough is, is good, but leaven in our lives is bad because leaven in our spiritual lives, it's a picture of, of sin. And so I want to take a minute just to kind of establish that. that we understand that in the Bible, when you see leaven, leaven is a picture of sin and corruption. And we see it really from the very beginning, back in the Old Testament, in Leviticus chapter 2, when the Mosaic law is being laid out. This is This is kind of the statutes and the regulations on how the Old Testament priests were to behave uh, when it came to sacrifices. And there was an Old Testament statute in the Mosaic law that said, When you are offering up uh, a meal offering or a grain offering or any offering that was going to be offered on the the altar, it could have no yeast in it whatsoever. The priests, the bread that they were supposed to eat was to be unleavened bread. And it was this mark of, of purity, of holiness, that if you're going to sacrifice or give something unto the Lord, it needed to be pure. The priests, their lives were committed unto the Lord. What they were to take into their lives was to be pure. And so we see it in the Old Testament mosaic Law, but then we see it repeatedly in the New Testament. In Matthew chapter 16, Jesus 
he was always kind of having these run-ins with the religious leaders of his day. The Pharisees, the Sadducees, the Herodians. Uh, these men, they were opposed to Jesus. They were threatened by Jesus. They were always trying to, to trip Jesus up and to disprove who Jesus was and try to shame Jesus. And so they very publicly thought they were calling Jesus out on the carpet and say, all right, Jesus, if, if you really are the Messiah, if you are who you say you are, then give us a sign. Do a miracle. Now, the audacity of this uh, you know, demand of the, the religious leaders in Jesus' day, he had already been doing many miracles. But they said, we want a, a bigger miracle. And you guys remember what Jesus told them? He said, I'm going to give you one miracle, and that will be the sign of Jonah the prophet. And by the way, Jesus fulfilled that. He gave them that sign. He was buried, and three days later, he rose again, just like Jonah was in the belly of the fish for three days, and then he was barfed up on shore. Jesus gave him that. But during that uh, interaction, after it was all said and done, he looked to his disciples and said, hey, beware of the leaven of the false teaching of the, the, the Pharisees and the Sadducees. He likened leaven to the false teaching of the religious leaders in his day. And what Jesus was saying was just a, a small portion, just a little leaven, just a little bit of falsehood can permeate through a person's heart and mind if it's taken in in the form of false teaching. So we see it in Matthew chapter 16. We see it again in Luke 12 where Jesus specifies, he says, beware of the hypocrisy of the, the Pharisees, again, the religious leaders. Be, beware of the hypocrisy. Now you think about that. Uh, hypocrisy, sin, as this picture of leaven. Imagine if you were going in for a job interview and they wanted to kind of know what your character was like. So they're like, hey, you know, are, are you honest? Do you live an honest life? You're like, well, most of the time, but sometimes I'm a hypocrite and sometimes a liar. Uh, that would ruin your whole reputation. And so just a little bit of hypocrisy, man, it, it leavens the whole lump. Again, it's a picture of sin. In Galatians, when Paul was writing his letter to them, he says the same thing. A little leaven leavens the whole lump. But the issue that they were dealing with there was the Judaizers. They were Jews who were coming against new baby Christians saying, you guys can't just be saved by grace. You can't just be saved by what Jesus did on the cross. No, you have to come under the law. You have to earn salvation. You have to be circumcised and do all these different things. And Jesus compared their uh, or not Jesus, but Paul here in Galatians 5, 9, compares their bondage of legalism to leaven. A little leaven leavens the whole lump. And then again in Matthew 13. This one is a little bit more controversial. This is Jesus. He compares his kingdom, the kingdom of heaven, he says there in Matthew 13. He speaks this parable, and I'll just read it. The kingdom of heaven is like leaven which a woman took and hid in three measures of meal till it was all leavened. So there's this picture, and it's kind of a, a surprising picture, where Jesus compares his kingdom to leaven. And many Bible scholars, probably most Bible scholars, would say that this is this beautiful picture of the gospel kind of going throughout the world and, until it permeates to the edges of, of the world. But I have a problem with that uh, understanding of this text because everywhere else we see leaven in the scriptures, it is used to denote corruption and sin. Corruption and sin. And so uh, it's not consistent with what the scriptures teach about leaven. Here Jesus always would just 
completely flip it on its head and say, well, this is what it means now. It just doesn't make sense, especially in the context as Passover is there and, and that's kind of the underlying situation. That's the content and context that Jesus is talking about. Uh, also, you have the, the preceding parable. Remember the parable where Jesus talks about the mustard seed? And then it grows into this huge, unnatural like tree. And then the birds of the air come and roost in it. Birds in the scriptures are always a picture of evil also. He said the kingdom of heaven would be like a mustard seed. Kind of same picture. And now here we have this woman who's making all of this dough. right? And when we read that, we think of just kind of a lady like making a loaf of bread in her kitchen. Just kneading the dough away. But it's this unnaturally large portion of dough. It was three measures or 40 liters. If you go backpacking, you might have like a 60 liter. Or if you're into lightweight backpacking, you probably have a 40 liter pack. Uh, that's like 12 gallons of dough or 88 pounds of dough. That's a lot of dough. It was enough to feed 100 people. It was this unnaturally large amount of dough. It, it was, and then she was taking this dough and she was hiding leaven in it. See, we're going to talk about the, the Feast of Unleavened Bread. And there should be no leaven in the dough during this time. And so she was hiding. It would have been a, a great offense uh, in this whole situation. So in the context of, of what Jesus is talking about, really he, he announces that his, his kingdom community would be threatened by sin and, and by corruption. And we actually see that taking place from our perspective now, don't we? Uh, and that is reality. Uh, G. Campbell Morgan, he, he wrote this about this particular passage that Jesus says. He says uh, that this leaven represents paganized influences brought into the church. And so, again, I believe that's my stance on it, and you are free to disagree. Everybody has the right to be wrong. But uh, we see these pictures of, of leaven being compared to sin. And then this last one that we're going to talk about this morning is here in 1 Corinthians chapter 5. Where Paul says, hey, you guys have this leaven, you have this sin. You have this creepo weirdo doing all these things in your congregation. And for the sake of, you know, being tolerant, for the sake of being diverse, you're allowing him to kind of remain. And I think that this is a particularly good word for us this morning. Because, unfortunately, I feel like we can relate with the church at Corinth more than I wish we could. And we see these very same things taking place in the modern church, don't we? That in the name of diversity, in the name of progressivism, in the name of tolerance, we're saying, all right, let's let all sorts of weird perversions into the church. And we won't even call them perversions anymore, but we'll celebrate them and say, this is great. And so now it's just normal that the church acts like the world and couples are sleeping together before they're married and uh, homosexuality is through the roof and there's all sorts of uh, abuse and alcoholism and all these things that we just say, oh, you know, no big deal. We, we kind of sweep it under the rug, not only corporately, but personally. And Paul is saying, hey, be careful not to do this because that's going to cause a lot of trouble in your life. Sin and leaven are very similar. And that's why it's a good analogy that is used in the scriptures. Sin and leaven are familiar in that, or similar in that it's easy to hide at first. Think about when you're making a loaf of bread. You think about like the baking powder and the baking soda. It's the same color. It's the same texture. You mix it in. You can't even see it's there. But then when you heat it up and it starts to cook, boy, then it's apparent that it's there. And that's the way sin is in our lives. At first, boy, it's easy to hide. Not a big deal. But when things 
get real and start to heat up, boy, it's apparent that sin is in there. Sin and leaven both have this permeating quality. They're both infectious. Both of them, if they're not dealt with, will spread and affect everything. And so again, uh, in the life of the believer and the church corporately, these things are applicable to us this morning. And so Paul is warning the Corinthian church, saying, hey, you guys, man, don't have this casual relationship with sin. Don't be a safe harbor for sin in your life. Get rid of it before it has the chance to spread uh, and cause even greater problems. He says, purge it. He says, purge it. Get rid of it. Again, it's such a good word for us today because oftentimes we fall for that lie. And we think, well, you know, it's just a little thing and I'm wrestling through it. And really, what's the big deal? We take the attitude of the Corinthian church. and We say, what's the big deal with a little bit of sin? And we compromise. And it reminds me of the story of the bear hunter. And he was out and he had this huge bear right in his sights. And he's getting ready to pull the trigger when the bear says, hey, hang on, man. Can, can, can we talk about this? Let's have a word. Can we really just work something out? What are you hoping to gain from this whole situation? And the hunter was kind of shocked, and he dropped his gun. He said, well, actually, what I really want out of this whole deal is, is a really nice fur coat. We said, good, good, good. Hey, we can build on that. Let's work on that. All I want is a full stomach. Let's sit down and negotiate. And so they sat down to have their negotiations, and before long, the bear got up and he walked away alone. The negotiations were a success. The bear had a full stomach and the hunter got his fur coat. See, because he was inside the bear. But that's the way Satan tempts us. He says, oh, let's make this compromise. It's not a big deal. And before you know it, boy, our lives are a disaster. And so Paul says, hey, don't negotiate. Don't, don't compromise with sin. Get rid of the leaven before it spreads and gets rid of you. And we see that all throughout the history of Israel in the form of, of the enemies that they were supposed to deal with. The Lord, as he was bringing them from the promised land, or not from the promised land, but from the wilderness to the promised land, as they were entering into the land of Canaan, remember, it was the land flowing with milk and honey. It was great. There was grapes the size of men's heads. It was a land that irrigated itself. It was good for crops. It was good for livestock. It was flowing with milk and honey. But the problem was is there was giants there and warriors, and they were pagans, and they were into all sorts of, of nasty stuff that was associated with uh, worshiping their, their pagan false gods. And what did the Lord tell the Israelites when they were entering into the promised land? He said, drive out the inhabitants of the land. Deal with them. Deal with them uh, severely. Deal with them absolutely. Deal with them completely. Get rid of them. Because if you don't, they will, first of all, they will influence your life for the negative. That's what Deuteronomy 20.18 says. Otherwise, they will teach you to follow all the detestable things they do in worshiping their gods, and you will sin against the Lord your God. So not only were they to drive the inhabitants out of the land, because if they didn't, they would influence God's people, but also because if they didn't, there would be future problems. God told his people in Numbers 33, 55, but if you do not drive out the inhabitants of the land, then it shall be that those whom you let remain shall be irritants in your eyes, or some translations say barbs in your eyes. 
That's gnarly. And thorns in your sides, and they shall harass you in the land where you dwell. Both of those things happened. The nation of Israel did not drive out their enemy. They did not obey the Lord. And as a result, those people influenced Israel to to walk against the Lord. They, They served false gods and idols. And what was the end result of that? They were taken into captivity and removed from the land eventually. Because they didn't drive the people out of the land, the people were a thorn in their side. All throughout the Old Testament, we see over and over and over again these battles and these conflicts that are never ending. There are people that should have been dealt with completely and wiped out. One of the people groups that we see over and over again as the enemies of Israel were the Philistines. The Philistines. They were not originally from Canaan. They were a a seafaring, like, giant warrior guys who settled on the west coast of the promised land. But they were amongst the people that God told Israel to, to drive out. And so Joshua, right, Joshua was the one who actually led God's people from the wilderness across the Jordan River into the promised land. And you take a look at the end of his life, Right? God said, go into the promised land, drive out the inhabitants of the people. Every place your foot touches, that's your land, I'm giving it to you. Also, just a side note, that's good food for thought to, to remember uh, in light of the current conflicts going on in the Middle East that God gave the Jews that land. That's not the point of this morning, but just know that. Uh, but there in Joshua chapter 13, it says this, Now Joshua was old and advanced in years, and the Lord said to him, You are old and advanced in years. And there remains yet very much land to possess. This is a land that yet remains all the regions of the Philistines. And he goes on and names a bunch of, of different things. But here it's been a whole generation, the whole, the whole life of Joshua. And still the Philistines are, are in place and they have not been driven out. You fast forward to the time of the judges, uh, hundreds and hundreds of years. And, and we see the story of Samson. Remember Samson's story? He was that like supernatural, like He-Man. He got his strength from his, his golden locks. Samson, he dealt with the Philistines. They were a problem in his day. But instead of driving the Philistines out, what did he do? He married one of them. Hey there, Delilah, what's it like? No, I'm just kidding. He married Delilah, who was a Philistine. He, he, he compromised greatly. And what was the outcome in Samson's life? He ended up blinded. And he ended up overcome. And that's exactly what sin does to us. It it, it tempts us. And then when we give in and we compromise with it, boy, there's this blinding effect. We're like, oh, what's the big deal? Until we're, we're overcome and things are a complete disaster. So not only were the Philistines not dealt with during Joshua's day, but then not throughout the whole time of the judges, but then you fast forward into the time of the kings, another period that was hundreds of years And you have the first king of Israel, King Saul, and how did he die? He was in battle with the Philistines, and they stuck him. They stuck him with arrows. He was mortally wounded. And so he stopped, and knowing that he was going to die anyways, and that the Philistines were going to grab a hold of him, he told his armor bearer, hey, man, kill me. If these guys get a hold of me, they're just going to torture me. But his armor bearer would not, and so he fell on his sword. But it was all because of the run-in with the Philistines. They had not dealt with them, and because they had not dealt with them, they came back to bite them. Uh, Again, another people group were the Amalekites. 
I want to look at them as an example also. Because although they were not part of the promised land, they were from south of the promised land, God told that same king, King Saul, he said, I want you to exterminate the Amalekites. You say, wow, that, that, that's harsh. Exterminate the Amalekites. He said, I want you to destroy every man, woman, child, beast, guard. It's toast. Kill all of them. And you say, ouch. What you have to understand is that that was for judgment, first of all. They were a, a people group who, when Israel was making their way through the wilderness, they attacked Israel from the back of the caravan. That's where all the old people and the kids and those who were sick would be. So just this kind of, uh, they were, they were playing cheap. And so there's this judgment that came along, but there's also a great act of mercy. And here's the thing. We read things like this in the Old Testament. We say, wow, God of the Old Testament was, was so harsh and, and, and not loving. And here's the thing. God is the same today, yesterday, and forever. What we have to remember when we look at these things is that God is good. He's merciful. There's things about who he is that we don't understand and that he takes no pleasure in the destruction of the wicked. That's what it says. And so there was plenty of time for these people to repent. It was an act of judgment. It was an act of mercy. But God said, I want you, King Saul, to annihilate them completely. And what did King Saul do? You remember? He kept King Agag and the best of the livestock for his trophy. And so then the prophet Samuel shows up on the scene. And he says, hey, what's up, King Saul? How are things going? And King Saul says, great. I'm just out here walking in obedience to the Lord, you know. And Saul was like, then why do I hear the bleeding of sheep? Why do I, you were supposed to kill those sheep. And, and why do you have the king as your prized possession? See, King Saul was uh, disobedient and he allowed the Amalekites to live. Big deal. Well, the Amalekites would come around. And later on, we see that it's the Amalekites who take David and his men's wives and children captive, kidnap them. Fast forward a couple hundred years after that, and we see in the book of Esther... Evil Haman. Remember what Haman wanted to do? He tried to completely eradicate the Jews. He wanted to wipe them off the face of the planet. And who was he a descendant from? Haman was a descendant of King Agag. Very interesting. See, they weren't dealt with, and they came around, and they caused a great deal of harm and trouble. And that's why God says, hey, deal with the enemy, deal with your sin. That little sin that you're harboring, that you're hanging on to, that you think is secret, that little sin that you think that you have control over, I'm here to tell you this morning that you don't. And that the Bible is true. And a man and a woman sows what they reap. And if you allow sin to be harbored in your life, it will spread, it will grow, it will come back around, and it will cause great devastation in your life. And so Paul says here, he says, purge it, get rid of it, cut it out. And we say, well, that's great. All right, Pastor Jimmy, I hear you loud, loud and clear. That's great. I, I will, I, I've been dealing with these things in my life. Like the Lord, he's hit me with it. I've been struggling in these areas I know I shouldn't be. But I feel like I'm trapped and I don't know how to let them go. Well, check out these next few verses that Paul uh, tells us here, verse 7 and 8. Verse 7, Paul says, Therefore purge out the old leaven, that you may be a new lump, since you truly are unleavened. Paul says, hey, remember, you're already unleavened. Remember that you already are a new creature. Remember that Christ, our Passover, was sacrificed for us. Therefore let us keep the feast with the old leaven, 
or, or let us, uh, therefore let us keep the feast, not with the old leaven, nor with the leaven of malice or wickedness, but with uh, the leaven, unleavened bread of uh, sincerity and truth. So Paul here, he uses this imagery of the Passover and of the feast of unleavened bread. Now, those are things that Paul's listeners would have been very familiar with. Even the little kids, everybody understood what Passover was. Everybody understood what the Feast of Unleavened Bread was. Some of us might not. So I want to take a minute to unpack that because if we don't understand, then we'll miss what Paul is saying. So the Passover was that event that began with the the 10th plague there in Egypt. Remember that Israel, they were slaves for 400 years in Egypt. But at the end of those 400 years, God raised up Moses to deliver them just like he promised that he would. The problem was, is that the king of Egypt, Pharaoh, when it came time to let God's people go, Pharaoh was like, no, I'm not going to do it. And so God, he kind of had to strong arm Pharaoh. He He had to apply a little bit of pressure to get Pharaoh to cooperate in letting his people go. And we have those 10 plagues. And uh, we remember the, the, the Sunday school story and the, the blood and the frogs and the gnats and the darkness and all the rest. Well, the 10th plague, the final plague, was the plague of the death angel. And that plague was where an angel of death was going to pass over the land and kill every single firstborn. Every single firstborn son of the, the Egyptians, of the Hebrews, of all the livestock, if it was the firstborn, they would die unless, unless they took a spotless lamb and sacrificed that lamb and applied the blood of the lamb to the doorposts of their houses, to the top and then to the sides. And if they applied the blood to their house, then death would pass over. They would be freed from the bondage of slavery and they would be given newness of life. Does that ring any bells? Right? Jesus is our Passover. When we apply the blood that he shed for us on the cross, by the way, they formed the shape of a cross when they were applying the blood. They didn't know, but we look back and we're like, whoa, Lord, you had it built in to show us this thing the whole time. When we apply the blood of Jesus to our life, what happened? Death passes over. We're, we're set free from the bondage of slavery. We're given newness of life. And so, so that's the Passover. And, and this Passover that they celebrated, it wasn't a one-time thing. I mean, the event was a one-time thing, but they were commanded to commemorate this forever. And it says there in Exodus 12, 14, this day shall be for you a memorial day and you shall keep it as a feast to the Lord throughout your generations as a statute forever. You shall keep it as a feast Seven days you shall eat unleavened bread. So this is the way this feast kind of unfolded. On day one, it would be called the day of preparation. And they would go throughout their house and they would get rid of all the leaven in their house. And they were serious about it. Jews still are. They will sweep. Because if you have like, if you're eating a Ritz cracker on your couch while you were watching football and the cracker crumbs fell in between the cushions of your couch, there's leaven in your house. So for them to clean, they would clean everything. No leaven. So day one was the day of preparation. They cleaned out the leaven. Then they would celebrate the Passover. They would remember when God delivered them from Egypt. And then the the six preceding days after that was the Feast of Unleavened Bread, where they would eat nothing but unleavened bread 
for that period of time. And so Paul is using this well-known feast, saying, remember to the church of Corinthians this whole situation, but remember that Jesus was your Passover, right? That you are forgiven, that you're set free from your sins because of what he did. But just because we were forgiven of our sins doesn't mean that we still don't deal with sin. And that's what the Feast of Unleavened Bread was all about, this call to, to purity, this, this recommitment to holiness is what Paul is calling the Corinthian church to. He says, let us continue. We've been saved. Let us continue now without leaven. And, and that's where we get to this point, like, great. I would love to continue without leaven, but how? But how? Again, what is the first thing that Paul does after he says, get rid of the leaven? He reminds them that they're already sin-free. He reminds them. He says, I want you to remember that. That's step number one when we're dealing with habitual sin, when we're trying to get rid of those things in our life that we know ought not be there. The first thing we do is we remember. We remember who Jesus is. We remember what he's done for us. And we remember who we are as a result. When you were saved, when you gave your life to Christ, you are a new creature in Christ, the Bible says. Remember that transformation that has taken place, that your sin has been dealt with by the blood of the Lamb, that he was sacrificed on the cross for us. And when he died, remember that we died with him. Remember, that's what Romans 6 tells us. Romans 6.11 says, Likewise, you also... Reckon yourselves to be dead indeed to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Remember that in coming to Christ, that sin has no hold on you anymore. Paul goes on in Romans 6, in verses 17 and 18 to say, But God be thanked that though you were slaves of sin, yet you obeyed from the heart that form of doctrine to which you were delivered. And having been set free from sin, you became slaves of righteousness. Remember that on the cross, the power of sin was broken in your life. Remember that on the cross, when Jesus died for you, that there was a transformation that took place. You are a new creature. The first part of overcoming that hidden sin in our life is to just flat out remember that you have no power over me. Like Gandalf, you shall not pass. You just got to remember and, and apply that to your life. And so step number one, Paul is saying, hey, remember. Remember what has been done for you. Remember who you are as a result. Step number two is to recognize. Recognize our inability to overcome sin and our need to rely on the Holy Spirit. Uh, if we go toe-to-toe with sin, if you this morning say, I'm resolved to never sin again and I'm going to... I'm going to do this. Come on, sin, bring it on. You're going to lose 100% of the time. We need to recognize our need for the Holy Spirit. Think about the Passover. How was it that Israel found victory over Pharaoh? Who dealt with Pharaoh? The Israelites didn't. God did. Who, who dealt with the death angel? God did through the blood of the Lamb. Who parted the Red Sea? God. Who defeated the Egyptian army? God did. Now, what if Israel said, Nah, Lord, I I know you're there for me, but we're going to handle this one on our own. How would they have fared against the Egyptian army? They would have gotten 
annihilated. We're not to go toe-to-toe with sin, but we're to trust the Lord to fight those battles for us. Right? First, we remember who the Lord is, who he is in our lives, who we are as a result. Then we recognize our need for the Holy Spirit to do that work. Because remember, Samson, I made mention of him before, that was kind of his tactic. He went toe-to-toe with the enemy in his own efforts. He said, I'm a strong guy. I've got this thing sorted. I'm going to whoop the Philistines. How did that work out for him? Poorly. He lost. You take that same enemy, but you take a completely different approach. You you, you take a a completely different man. Samson, just, I mean, ripped, yoked, stronger than any other guy. He, He couldn't do it in his own strength. Now take David, little scrawny, redheaded stepchild, forgotten about, pipsqueak. And who did he take down? Goliath, nine footer, big dude. But did he do it in his own efforts? He said, all right, Lord, I'm going to need you. And he picked up that stone and sling, and it sunk, it says, sunk into his forehead. Over he went. Those two, one man relied on his own strength. One relied on God's strength. And that's what we're to do. We're to remember. We are to recognize our need. Thirdly, we're to revise our habits. We're to actually change our lives. We're to put one foot in front of the other. I fear that so often we stop at step two in the church. We say, all right, Lord, I remember who you are and what you've done. And I know that it's not by my strength, but yours. So, all right, if you don't stop me, then I'm just going to do it. And if you don't do the work, then the work's not going to get done. But there's a part of sanctification that we play a role in, isn't there? One of my good friends always says this. He says, you don't lean on a shovel and pray for a hole. There's a role that we have to play. David had to pick up the stone. The Israelites had to sacrifice the, she, the, the lamb and uh, apply the blood. There's things that we have to actually put one foot in front of the other and say, all right, this is what's causing me to get tripped up. I'm going to, with my will, I'm going to do what I can do and trust God to do the rest for me. So often we, we leave this part out and say, oh, well, I just don't have the strength to do it. And so, no, that's not right. We're to flee temptation. That's what Paul's going to tell us in 1 Corinthians chapter 6. That's what he tells us uh, in 2 Timothy 2.22. To flee our youthful lusts. To make every effort to avoid those things that trip us up. So often we're like the little kid. Right? There's a story uh, of a mom who walks into the kitchen. And she, she catches her little boy with his hand in the cookie jar. And she says, Willie, what are you doing? And he says, I'm just in here fighting temptation, mom. Right? So don't put your hand in the cookie jar. Don't go that way. Take those steps. You know what trips you up. You know what takes you out. Be like Joseph. When Joseph was tempted, what did he do? He booked it. He ran straight out of his clothes when Miss Potiphar tried to put the moves on him. And that's what we are to do too. And so we're to remember, we're to recognize our need, we're to revise our lives, and then lastly, we're to replace. We're to replace the leavened bread of malice and wickedness with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. Right, those, those things that had us trapped, that time that we spent doing things that we shouldn't, were to replace that. If you just take a habit out of your life and don't put anything good in its place, it, it's like the story that Jesus told where the man was set free from the demon and, and his house was all swept out and clean and Jesus said, hey, that is not gonna do him really any good unless he puts something good in there because if he doesn't replace it with good, more demons are gonna come in and he's gonna be worse off than he was before. 
And the same thing happens to us. We think, all right, well, uh, it's all gone and now I'm good. No, you got to fill it with goodness. You have to, to replace it with the, the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. How? Immerse yourself in the things of the Lord. Study the scriptures. Get some commentaries. Go on prayer walks. Listen to worship music. Have fellowship with solid believers. That, that is how. There's a, a story uh, about D.L. Moody. He's a famous Bible teacher. And he was giving a conference. It was other pastors. It was an auditorium filled with pastors. And he said, as he was holding up an empty glass, he said, gentlemen, how do you suppose I am to get the air out of this glass? And all these guys had all of their ideas. Well, we could set up a, a certain vacuum and we could put this on it and that on it. And after he kind of let them struggle for a little while, he smiled and he walked over and he picked up a pitcher of water and he filled the glass with water and said, now all the air is gone. And this is what he said. He went on to explain that victory in the Christian life is not accomplished by sucking out a sin here and there, but by being filled with the Holy Spirit. See, we try to like, you know, that's good for us to have the purpose and to will and to say, all right, Lord, I remember who you are. I remember what you've done. I remember who I am. I know that it's only by your strength. I, I, I'm going to revise my life. I'm going to make those changes. But we got to remember that if we don't fill it with the Lord, man, and, and that's the, the wonder of it. Here's the thing. There's this truth that the closer I am to the Lord, the more I saturate my life with goodness, the less appetite I have for filth. And, and that's what D.L. Moody is saying, man, fill your life with the, the Holy Spirit and there'll be no room for the other. So Paul says, hey, listen, be careful, you guys. That little sin that you think you've got a grip on, that little area that you have hidden away that you think isn't gonna matter, it does and it will and it will spread and we'll come back to bite you. And Paul says, deal with it. A little leaven leavens a whole lump. Deal with it. Get rid of it. Drive it out. Remember who you are in Christ. Remember that sin has no grip on you. Recognize your need for God to fight the battle for you. Do what you can do. Revise. Change the way that you live. And then replace the negative with the good. And that's my prayer for us. And here's the thing this morning. My prayer for us this morning before I, I came out and shared these few verses was, Lord, don't let us get beat up by the enemy. Don't let us get bogged down in condemnation. See, because that can be the, the thing that happens. We can, we can say, oh, man, I've been wrestling with this, and I want it out of my life, and I have victory for a while, and then it comes back, and I, I got this struggle in my life that is, hey, welcome to the club that's what the dude who wrote this went through. He said, those things in my life that I want to do, I don't. And the things I don't want to do, I end up doing. Right? It's all this, this, this thing, that this, this sanctification. The Lord is, is working things into us and out of us. But don't fall into that trap. See, there, there's that balance. Right? We don't walk in condemnation. Therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. You are a blood-bought saint if you have put your hope and faith in Jesus. Your sins are forgiven had nothing to do with you and everything to do with Jesus. This is about sanctification. This is about growing in the Lord. Don't harbor that sin. Don't hide it. It will come back to bite you. But instead, remember. Remember what the Lord did for you. Remember who you are as a result. 
Don't, don't, don't forget those things. It, it's important. Uh, recognize your need for God. He's going to fight your battles. Revise, change, and then replace. It's good stuff. So I love that at the end of service, we get to come and take communion. And again, there are, there are people who have asked me, like, why do you guys do that so often? And, uh, you know, they come at a place of, of concern. Like, if you do it so often, boy, it's not going to mean very much. But if I'm completely honest, I need this, like, anchor point in my life regularly. Whereby I hit the pause button on life and I say, that's right, Lord. I remember who you are and what you've done in my life. I remember who I am as a result. And it's this time that we're invited. Are you worthy to come to the table? You're not. None of us are. But we've been invited by a king. We don't come on our own merit. We come on the merit of the one who died for us. We come on the merit of the king who's invited us. And we come to the table and we remember. And we reflect. We examine our hearts and say, all right, Lord, I'm surrendered. Where where are these areas that I need to, to change? And we rejoice in what he's done. And we walk away refreshed. Such a good thing, and I'm so glad that we get to do it. And so, Lord, as we look at these few verses in 1 Corinthians, as Paul warns the Corinthian church that a little leaven leavens a whole lump, I pray, Lord, that it would stir in us that that the reality of sin and its destructive nature would be something that we would no longer have an interest in, in harboring or hiding or... having in our lives at all, Lord, that we wouldn't be those who compromise with sin at all. That we wouldn't be like the Israelites, Lord, who who never really walked in all that you had for them. But Lord, that we would walk in everything that you have for us. And all that's possible because of the cross. And so as we come to the table, Lord, I pray that it would be that wonderful time of remembrance. I pray that it would be that wonderful time of of letting you examine our hearts. Lord, that it would be a wonderful time of just celebration as we remember the goodness of who you are. And Lord, just a time of of refreshing. Thank you, Lord, for all that you're doing and all that you've done. Lord, as we take the, the cracker that represents your body broken for us, where we take in that promise, Lord, that that because you are bound, we've been set free, that sin has no hold on us anymore. As we drink the cup, as we take in the juice, we remember your words, it's finished. That it's by your blood we've been forgiven. And we rejoice in that reality, Lord. We love you and we thank you. In Jesus' name, amen. We hope you've enjoyed listening to this teaching of God's word presented by Siskiyou Christian Fellowship. We pray it's blessed you and given you a greater understanding of the Bible. To learn more about us, visit siskiyouchristianfellowship.com.